Happy July 4th, 2021. This, uh, this day uh, has historically been viewed as a good and consequential day in American history. Some of you may know my mother was a formidable and celebrated history teacher. She taught uh, in the Houston Independent School District for 37 years. She was a subject matter expert on the topic of the history of the United States of America. A few years ago, HISD actually rewrote history and renamed Robert E. Lee High School in her honor. And you can look that up. And while you're looking it up, I suggest you get one of these Wisdom High School hoodies <laughs> at a very reasonable price. Now, I've done a little bit of a survey of the congregation. I think this is one of the churches with fewest hoodies per capita in the city of Houston. So you can begin to address that uh, statistical disparity right now with your Wisdom High School hoodies. Uh, my father... Uh, served in the Navy in the South Pacific in World War II. And apparently, from what I gather, uh, during his time in the South Pacific, he acquired some pyrotechnical skills and proclivities. So between my mother's love for American history and my father's ability to make things go boom and light up the night sky, in my household, we were never cheated on the 4th of July. Now, for a variety of reasons in recent years, competing narratives about American history have, con have caused confusion and rancor and division. And if you want to boil the debate down to its simplest terms, I suppose the cutting question is whether our founding fathers and the ideas that shaped and formed the American experiment or on the right side, or the wrong side of history. Fear not. I'm not going to wander into those treacherous waters uh, directly this morning. I do want to talk about the concept, the notion, that history has a wrong side and a right side. To claim that history has a wrong side and a right side uh, is to assume or to claim, I suppose, that there is inherent meaning and transcendent purpose to history. And that the right side of history can be ascertained and understood and that we may align ourselves with it. I happen to agree with that view. But it's worth noting that many of our learned friends uh, and neighbors and corporate oligarchs and celebrity persuaders and professors, public intellectuals and all types of talking heads uh, have told me and told you that they have, quote, followed the science and they are confidently certain that all carbon-based life forms are nothing other than the chance byproducts of a chemical reaction in a primordial soup, followed by 3.5 billion years of 
undirected, random mutations. And that all life is ultimately futile and without purpose. That's what science has told us. If that's true, then there is no right side or wrong side to history. History is just sound and fury signifying nothing. The tale of a, told by a billion idiots who are now nothing more than food for worms, or ultimately will be. So I get slightly irritated and frustrated when the same public intellectuals tell me those two contradictory things at the same time. They tell me that they know who's on the right side and the wrong side of history, and they tell me at the same time that there is no purpose or meaning to history. You don't get to have it both ways. So I hope to bring a biblical perspective to bear on the question about the purpose and meaning of history, if you'll indulge me as I try to do that. So the fact that I occasionally get frustrated and irritated these days is a well-documented fact. Those who uh, have had the occasion to have a casual conversation with me have no doubt noticed that tendency. And I'm not going to excuse it. In fact, I'm going to address it prophetically today. But let it be said that I am a grumpy 65-year-old man who likes the 4th of July, just for the record. So we're continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed. And we've come to the heart of the creed in which we affirm our belief, our core conviction, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and he descended into hell. My point today will be that the cross of Jesus Christ shows us the meaning and purpose of history. It also shows us how to be on the, quote, right side of history. Let's start with the first vision in Revelation. Many years after Pontius Pilate, a deep state bureaucrat, made the politically calculated and cowardly decision to crucify Jesus, we encounter John, an old man, the last eyewitness on a desolate island, exiled there by the Roman Empire because of his loyalty and faith in Jesus. At that time, Christians in various parts of the Roman Empire were suffering persecution because of their fidelity to Jesus and their refusal to capitulate to the prevailing political and philosophical and religious orthodoxy of the day, which would have them confess that Caesar is Lord and Savior and that the Roman Empire is the be-all and end-all of human history. Because they refused to do so, they were part of a suffering church following a suffering servant Messiah. We pick up the action in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. This is the first vision. John is caught up in this vision. He's transported to heaven. He sees the throne and the one who sat on the throne. He witnesses the worship of the four living creatures and the 24 elders. He hears the chorus, holy, holy, holy 
His heart is full and his mind is blown. But the real punchline to the vision comes in chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins by John's account, and I quote, I saw in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on the outside and the inside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel crying out, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seal? But no one was able in heaven, on earth, or under the earth to open the scroll or even to look upon it. And John says, I began to weep and weep because no one was found who could open the scroll and to look upon it. So what's happening here? John's in his vision. He goes from this moment of, of uh, transcendent, uh, ecstatic joy, watching the worship of heaven, and then he sees the scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And John knows in his gut, intuitively, deeply, that scroll has the answers. That scroll can explain human suffering, human desolation, human hope, human courage. John knew, he knew that that scroll is the key to understanding the meaning and the purpose of history. The deepest questions are answered, but the answer is not accessible because no one is worthy to take the scroll or even to look upon it. And so the scroll is in the right hand of the one on the throne. And John is just weeping at the frustration So one of the 24 elders says, stop crying. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has fought and won a great victory. And thus he can open the scroll and break the And John's immediate reaction is, that actually makes sense, of course. If I want to understand the meaning and purpose of human history, I look to the greatest warriors. I look to the military victory. I understand the great battles where superior strength and might and strategy overcomes an enemy. And so John's expectation is that he's going to see a really powerful figure. But then he says, I looked. And in the midst of the throne and the living creatures, and in the midst of the 24 elders, I saw standing 
a lamb as one who had been slain. What? Wait. And the action continues. And he watches as the lamb approaches the throne and takes from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. He takes the scroll. And a new song breaks out in heaven among the living creatures and the elders. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals because you by your blood have purchased human beings from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people for our God. And then myriads of angels join in. Worthy is the Lamb. And then ultimately, every creature on earth, in heaven, under the earth, even in the sea, in the God's vision, joins in the song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I suppose we can become overly familiar with certain passages and images, but this is a startling revelation in the book of Revelation. And really, there you have it. The meaning and purpose of history is found in the Lamb who was slain. God Almighty overcomes the humanizing powers of the cosmos the violence, the greed, the enmity, the division, the rancor, the hatred, the warfare. And he does so by a stunning act of sacrificial, self-giving, suffering love. We are forgiven and set free because Jesus died for our sins. Human beings from every race and culture and tribe and language and region have been rescued by God's love, for God's love. This is our story, this is our song, and this is the message of the cross, which brings us to our passage today. Our passage today that we're going to focus on primarily is from John's, I mean, excuse me, Paul's first letter to the knuckleheads at Corinth, picking up in verse 18 of the first chapter. I'm going to read for you my own uh, translation. This would be the New Jack version, uh, <clears throat> not yet uh, for sale. I'm giving it away this morning. <clears throat> Paul writes, For the message of the cross is moronic nonsense to those who are perishing, but it is God's dynamic power for us who are being rescued. For it is written, I will destroy the elitist sophistry of the so-called sophisticates. And I will set aside the proud intellectualism of the self-styled intellectuals. Where is the sophisticate? Where is the legal scholar? Where is the talking head of this age? Hasn't God moronified the elitist sophistry of the bogus world system? Now, for those of you who are 
Googling uh, uh, mor- the verb uh, morana, moranified on dictionary.com. It's not there yet. <laughs> Sometimes to have an accurate translation of the Greek, you have to invent a word in the English, is my experience. Well, Paul uses blunt and jarring language because the stakes were high in first century Corinth. And I've given you a blunt and jarring translation because the stakes are high today. Paul uses several interesting Greek words, and I want to highlight a few of them. The two key words in this passage are the Greek moros or moria, which would be translated as fool or foolish uh, in the typical English translation. But as you might surmise, uh, this uh, Greek word is the word from which we derive our English word moron. And I think it's that jarring in Paul's letter. The other uh, key word is Sophia, typically translated as wisdom, from whence we get our word sophisticated. Human beings want to be sophisticates and not morons. But the message of the cross, by human standards and criteria, sounds moronic and unsophisticated. The message of the cross moronifies our notions of wisdom. In other words, the cross shows us that we do not know what we do not know and that we do not even know that we do not know what we do not know. And I could go on. Winston Churchill and other uh, sages have observed that history is written by the purported winners. If we embrace the anti-supernatural presuppositions of the Enlightenment and postmodern philosophy, and we therefore dismiss the incarnation of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus as inadmissible superstitions, we are left with a few core historical facts about Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter's son from a small town, a nobody from nowhere. Jesus lived in relative obscurity, far away from the centers of power and wealth in the Roman Empire. Jesus was publicly executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal, humiliating, and dehumanizing form of execution reserved for non-citizens, disreputable scoundrels with no status. Jesus, therefore, was publicly exposed to ridicule and disgrace on the cross. Romans celebrated winners and mocked losers. Given those historical facts, how might a sophisticated, self-respecting Roman citizen respond to Paul's gospel? Something like, you were telling me that I should offer my heart and my loyalty to this loser, this defeated Disgraced nobody, one of thousands of nobodies, crucified by the might, mighty and just Roman Empire. 
That is moronic nonsense. The message of the cross was a tough sell then, and it's a tough sell now. Paul, of course, was not trying to craft a feel-good message for popular consumption based on conventional notions of power, success, or wisdom. The, the gospel was not the result of various focus groups and consultants coming up with the best possible narrative for the time and the place. Paul preached Christ crucified because he knew it was true. He knew it was true even though it was a scandal for proper religious people and moronic nonsense to self-styled intellectuals. Paul himself had been an extreme skeptic about Jesus and his followers, but then he had a close, personal, life-altering encounter with the resurrected, crucified Messiah. After that, he knew that human beings have to make a fundamental choice. We can try to be wise in our own eyes, trusting human wisdom, human ingenuity, human morality, or we can surrender our hearts and minds to the God who demonstrated His love on a Roman cross. Some within the church of Corinth claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they were enamored by the standards of status in the ideologies of the bogus world system. I can say the same thing about us today. The Corinthians were overly impressed with themselves and they tended to be underimpressed by the message of a crucified Savior. They were missing the point of the cross and looking for ways to bolster their pride in their own spiritual and intellectual gifts. They saw themselves as winners. They did not like Paul's constant emphasis on the downer of the cross. So I have a lot to say about the message of the cross. More than I can say in our allotted time. I've narrowed my points down from 27 in my first draft to 5. Or 5.5 depending on how you count. So I just want to methodically and efficiently work through those if I can resist the temptation to uh, go on and on about each one. So the first point I want to make about the cross, the cross exposes the futility and the folly of human pride and shows us the catastrophe of our sin. We may take pride in our religiosity or our morality or pride in our intellectual sophistication. A lot of us uh, find time to do both. The cross tells us that we cannot be religious enough or moral enough or smart enough to rescue ourselves from our selfishness, our anger, our addictions, our bitterness, our envy, our greed, our lust, or our lies. The cross shows us that our sins, which we rationalize and excuse, are deadly serious. The wages of sin are death. The cross shows us the wages of sin. Point number two. The cross reveals who God eternally is and what history ultimately is about. Here I'm going to step into theological waters that are too deep for me. 
It was a response to a question on an essay about the Trinity that resulted in my only B in seminary. I'm still a little bit bitter about it, but I, <clears throat> I do not have an A understanding of the Trinity, apparently. But what I am learning of all these years of thinking about who God is, the triune God, I'm learning that God himself is self-giving love. And he invites human beings like us to participate in the internal loving communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a mind-blowing, logic-defying reality that God himself, his very being, is relationship. Love is not what God does, although he does love, love is who God eternally is. If God had never created anything, there is love in the Trinity, real love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the very love we were created to experience and participate in. That's why we exist. That Trinitarian love is available to us today because God the Son gave himself to the point of death and took upon himself our sins and our guilt. The point of history, God's goal for his creation is shalom, experienced by us, experienced between and among his image bearing creatures as communion, loving relationships. You know this is what your life ultimately is about. It's these relationships that we have. It's these moments that we cherish, that we hang on to. That's why death is such a catastrophe for us, right? It's the end of those relationships as far as we can tell. This is not what we're created for. We're created for love that lasts. And we're created to experience that love now by God's grace. The purpose of history is communion. Point number three. The cross shows us that God suffers for us and with us. This is at least part of what we affirm in the creed when we say that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried and descended into hell. Jesus, God himself in human flesh and blood, experienced the full measure of the devastating reality of suffering abandonment, and death. John Stott uh, wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. One good reason to be an Anglican is John Stott. And The Cross of Christ 
If it's not the very best theology book written in the 20th century, uh, as Bum Phillips said about Earl Campbell, uh, it wouldn't take long to call the role of those books that are better. Bum Phillips was a football coach. Earl Campbell was a football player. I realize <laughs> you're a very uh, sophisticated crowd here. You may not know these pop culture uh, facts. So John Stott put it this way, and of course, I'm just going to quote him. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross in the real world of pain. How could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsakenness. This is the God for me. John Stott, the cross of Christ. Point number four. The cross makes it possible for those who are perishing to become those who are being rescued. These are not fixed and faded categories. God's gift on the cross is for everyone. If we want the gift, we have to abandon our moronic delusions of self-righteous self-sufficiency by saying no to our self-serving pride and by saying yes to God's self-giving love demonstrated by Jesus on a Roman cross. We call that conversion. And that's an open invitation. And if you've never heard that invitation or never considered it, I pray that you would. And if you have friends and you've not shared with them that invitation, I pray that you will. This is really good news. And why should people like us keep it to ourselves? My final point. The cross shows us how to be on the right side of history. One day at a time. Having the right ideology or political philosophy or economic theory does not put anyone on the right side of history. Even having above-average theology by itself does not put anyone on the right side of history. Putting our lives in the hands of Jesus, submitting to His authority and saying yes to His will, 
will put you on the right side of history. But you don't step into the right side of history once and for all. Do you realize each and every day, in so many different encounters, we have the opportunity to choose between being on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. In the way that we deal with our neighbor, in the way that we handle our personal business, do we live with integrity and love or do we live with dishonesty and contempt? Are we able to rise above the rancor and the anger of a particular time and look to the Lamb who was slain to give us our marching orders for the given day in every particular moment? You can never rest on your laurels that you're on the right side of history based on something you did a week ago or this morning. To be on the right side of history is to walk by the Spirit. It's a moment-by-moment Life of repentance and submission, of accepting forgiveness and being open to God's direction. If I made that sound easy, I apologize. So our daily missional opportunity is to join with those who by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit are loving others the way Jesus has loved us. That includes love for those whose words and actions might tend to mark them as our enemies. Those who dismiss us, Jesus' followers, as unsophisticated, moronic, and phobic. Recently, uh, on more than one occasion, I have caught myself feeling a little bit of contempt for those who seem to hold me and everything I believe in in contempt. I am very frustrated with at least my perception about the trajectory and the ideology of our declining uh, and decadent civilization. That could call for various responses from human beings. But as followers of Jesus, we really just have one viable option. We need to figure out how in a practical way to love those people who hold us in contempt and wish that what we uh, thought and believed in and did uh, was illegal or at least uh, uh, highly uh, condemned uh, by the popular view. That's not unlike the predicament of the earliest Christians, is it? How many times have you celebrated the earliest Christians and their fidelity in in waking up every day and putting their lives on the line uh, uh, against a political uh, power and establishment that was seeking to destroy them, literally, physically destroy the church. 
And we celebrate those Christians for their faithfulness and their fidelity and for their joy and for the way that they love their enemies. The way that they imitated God Himself on the cross. Because if the cross tells us nothing else about God, it tells us that God loves His enemies. Paul himself says, while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. And so the mark and the measure of those who follow Jesus in a culture that's increasingly hostile is not to succumb to the devil's temptation of anger and contempt and looking for a way to get the power back or whatever. How can I practically love the people that God puts in my path? How can we together as a community of faith have a witness of love and compassion in a social order that seems bent on self-destruction and dissolution? That's what the early church did. According to the book of Acts, they turned the world upside down. They didn't hold any political offices or wield any political power. They didn't control great amounts of capital. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that you capitulate and give in to bad ideas and bad ideologies. I think we resist them. We fight every opportunity we have, but the weapons that we fight with, they're not the weapons of anger and contempt. We're not looking for vengeance. We're looking for ways to be on the right side of history. Looking for ways to align ourselves with the Lamb who was slain. If I made that sound easy, I apologize. But if you haven't uh, uh, prayed lately for those people that are driving you crazy, that's probably a good place to start. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day that we, we can celebrate uh, sacrifice and love and freedom. Thank you that we have so many good role models to look to in the history of this country. But may we look primarily to you. And we thank you that the, the cross shows us who you are. And the cross shows us who you're calling us to be. May we live that way by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.